Hi everyone, welcome to Directors and Animation Podcast. My name is Avgusta Zurilidi and I'm the creator and host of this podcast. Today I have the great pleasure to talk to the fantastic directors of a Shaun the Sheep movie for Armageddon, Will Beecher and Richard Phelan. Before we begin, spoiler alert for those of you who might not have seen the film yet, Will and Richard do talk about scenes from their film, so if you haven't seen it yet, I would strongly recommend you watch it first and then continue listening to the podcast. However, if you don't mind the film spoilers, then keep on listening. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. I'm Will. And I'm Richard. Uh, first of all, massive congratulations on the BAFTA nomination. That's such a big thing and so awesome. Thank you very much. With all the interviews, we always start with just um, talking about your career path and kind of what led you to directing a feature film. So it's if you start with you, Will, um, yeah. just your career path. Well, I, I fell in love with animation when I was quite young and it was a hobby. So when I was a teenager, I was making films at home and... I didn't realise when I started that it was a career. It was just something I loved. I wanted to learn about. And then when I got to the age where I realised you could do it for real, I started writing to all the companies and just trying to get anything I could in terms of work experience and information. So it's been a long time for me from from when I first started doing it, but I've loved I've loved the way it's evolved and developed, and I'm very happy to be in the industry. Mm-hmm. And what led you to Ardman? What um, was Ardman straight after uni, or did you do other kind of? Did you work on other studios? I had a little bit of experience uh, as a runner in London and worked in model making in a few companies. But really, I think I was my my main ambition was to become an animator at Ardman. That was my dream. So I actually wrote to them when I was about fourteen, and I got work experience with them when I was about eighteen. And so throughout my degree. I was going there for a summer holiday job. So I started off as a, you know, an intern in mm-hmm. model making and then every year went back and learned a bit more. And it really helped me. It helped me on my course because it sort of pointed me towards what I needed to learn in order to get a job at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And then did you work, um, did you always work as an animator and you kind of, um, did you work as an animator and then maybe animation director? How did you kind of work within Admin? Yeah, I, my ambition was to get to the animation team and so I did about a year in model making before I had that opportunity. Um, and once I became a sort of junior animator, I, I just worked my way up through experience, through, you know, working on different projects. Um, but whenever I had a gap, and I've always been freelance, so every time I've had a gap between projects, I've applied for short film schemes. And and I just realised, actually, I don't just love animating. I love making films and I love storytelling. and And so... So the bigger ambition to sort of direct bigger things grew. Mm-hmm. And uh, 10 years or so I was at Ardman, I, I spent a lot of time talking to people about how to develop those skills and how to learn more about story. I obviously met Rich about 10, maybe longer years ago, and mm-hmm. he was working story. So we got chatting and I spoke to him about it, but also really the development team at Ardman. And so they knew that I had an ambition to do features, uh, but it was just fortune and sort of timing that led to Sean the Sheep. Yeah, no, it's great that you were able to kind of combine working in the industry and making your own short films. That seems to be quite a nice kind of combination. Yeah, I felt like I was very lucky with the timing because there was a gap and it's really hard. It's a hard industry to sustain a career in. Um, 
so I was just fortunate, I think, that when I did have gaps, there were schemes open and available. And I did the Channel 4 Air scheme, which was was a really great thing for, for the sort of 20 years or so that it went on, mm. because it really nurtured narrative film making. As a lot of the other schemes were quite sort of about abstract film or innovative sort of CG, which That's none true. of which I was really interested in. Mm. So. That's great. Thank you. And Richard, your turn. Um, so I, I came through it slightly differently to what I studied at the National Film and Television School. Uh, I studied directing animation. And when I graduated, I wanted to be a story artist uh, in feature films. And so um, I started out as a storyboard artist in on commercials in London. So I worked at Partizan uh, and Nexus and Framestore. And then I got a call um, from Ardman saying they'd seen my grad film from the NFTS. And so could I come in for an interview? So I met a sort of lot of the development team there. And then um, Richard Starzak, the creator of Shaun the Sheep, um, he asked if I could work on series three of Shaun the Sheep as a storyboard artist. And so I sort of, that was my in to Artman. And then from then on, I've sort of worked consistently for them. So I worked on the first Shaun the Sheep film as a senior story artist. And then I was a writer on series uh, four and five of Shaun the Sheep. Um, I was head of story on the Farmers Llamas. And then I also worked with Nick Park as a story artist on Early Man. And then um, as Farmageddon started to sort of, sort of ramp up, I was head of story on that. And then um, Paul Cooley, the producer, asked if I would like to direct it with Will. And so um, that's how we started on Farmageddon. And um, when did you know that you wanted to uh, go into story? Because when you study, there's so many different pathways that people choose before they become a director. Um, so it could be animation, it could be design. Why and when did you kind of figure out that you want to go into story? Um, after I graduated from uni, I wanted to be an animator, a 2D animator I studied. And then I used to look at a lot of blogs um, and I came across um, a few different sort of uh, Pixar story artists and I really liked the sort of their approach to storytelling and I realized that um, story art was a job in and of itself. And so I started to concentrate more and more on it. And so when I applied to NFTS, I told them like I wanted to be a story artist. And so um, I really love the pre-production process and the sort of development of ideas and how story is the sort of um, the visual side of um, constructing sort of larger stories and sort of I, I enjoy storyboarding is the sort of like rewriting we board things multiple times and I don't find that sort of painful I really enjoy that process I really enjoy finding the story and sort of pulling it out of the ether and so um, it sort of started out just by coming across those blogs sort of like Alex Wu and Nick Sung was sort of like sort of early sort of fans and then I came across Matt Jones and Matt Jones was at Ardman and then through Matt Jones I met Ashley Body and so just sort of like there's this lovely community of story artists sort of like because there aren't that many of them um, and so I've, it's just it's a really sort of encouraging and supportive sort of group um, and so that's sort of how I got into it. That's great I, I always like to start with a path because I find 
everyone has slightly different way into the industry or into directing. And for especially for people who are listening who want to become a director, it's quite, I think, an inspiring thing to go, okay, you know, that's your path, Will, or that's your path, Rich, and it sort of gets ideas. Um, my next question is about uh, directors working together. So in, in a lot of feature animation films, there's a at least two directors, sometimes there's even more because of the just magnitude of uh, feature filmmaking. So from a practical point of view, um, how did you work together? Did you split scenes or production stages? Just how did that work? Total disaster, yeah. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> Whoever got in first got to dictate what was happening that day. Um, no, we, we were involved sort of together through all of the pre-production process. And so a lot of the discussions, um, we would do everything together. And then once production started, we started to sort of, we'd broken the film then into sequences. And so we discussed which of the sequences we'd like to take and sort of full ownership of. And we would sort of split it right down the middle. Uh, and then the floor process, we would meet in the mornings to discuss the scenes we were working on that day so that we would both give input and then we would split off to direct, but then we'd meet again in the evening to sort of go through the edit and the animatic. So it's a sort of, there's this constant sort of flow of communication between us because obviously it's all got to sort of go back together again like a huge jigsaw. But we spent a year or so in pre-production just discussing the story before we'd even begun shooting it. So, hmm. And we, um, I mean, there's certain sequences we ended up both directing in a way because we sort of, we tried to split it fairly neatly, and and as Rich said, we were drawn to particular things that we wanted to, you know, pulled us in. Um, but there were times when we swapped things around, and there was a sequence that you started, and then we swapped halfway through. Mm. Um, but it was good just having that shared creative space. So we had one office that we shared together. I think actually having our sort of mornings or evenings in there it just meant that all those tiny little things that. You know, you might decide on your own. We could share together. As well as that, during the day when we were with the animators, we would do a lot of um, live action video referencing for all the scenes. And so we would sort of rehearse them with the animators. And often we would pair up to sort of brief the animator and then also act the whole thing out so that we would all understand um, how Lula's going to behave or Agent Red or Shaun the Sheep. So like we all were sort of inside their heads all the time. Mm. And you would do that some of those, I guess, together. Yes. So you yeah. would know what's happening in all the different yeah. scenes and all the different shots. Yeah. We tried to um, utilise the sort of system they'd used before because at Ardman, most of the films have had two directors. And on the first Sean film, Mark and, and uh, Richard Starzak had developed a sort of traffic light system where they'd have certain shots they called red shots which they both had to see together mm -hmm. and we used that a slightly different version of that but we used that so that we could keep on top of you know we both agreed in advance in a sequence what we felt really was key for us both to be involved in and that was fairly you know just from a, a sort of production point of view that was a fairly easy way for them to manage our time yeah so they identify those kind of key moments and yeah. they know to bring you both at yeah. the same time yeah. and then yeah. you can go away and kind of work on separate exactly. that's really good i like this kind of 
practical aspects of it because you know uh, obviously directing is a, is a very creative thing but if you don't have the support of production to actually happen you know for this uh, these ideas to happen then it, it's kind of chaos absolutely <laughs> on such a big project there's obviously kind of ideas and notes and feedback that kind of floats around and I'm always curious if directors have their own methods of kind of keeping track of information because you know sometimes if you don't write it down straight away it means like it's gone the next day you don't remember the idea did you develop any kind of your own personal methods over the years uh, well I carry a notebook with me everywhere uh, which I would use to sort of just write down jot down anything anyone was saying um but we have, like Will was mentioning, we have an amazing sort of support crew of production sort of staff. And so our ADs would be making notes, um, our coordinators. And so they would hand us things in the mornings, like going, these are the notes for the day, or um, here are more notes. And then at the same time, the Paul, the producer, would be getting notes from executives in Studio Canal. And so he would be sort of um, sifting through those to see like, where is the consistent notes? So that we would meet up sort of like on a weekly basis to go, these are the sort of big picture notes that are coming from the studio um, that we need to sort of address. Whereas others, they might be more subjective and like, that's not quite clear yet, but it's like, that's because we've only shot 20% of it. You have to sort of give it time to let more animation arrive and you'll start to see it sort of come together. Like we, we believe it will work. And so we're not gonna worry about those notes just yet. But yeah, I mean, like we have everything. We have whiteboards up in the office. We have index cards for the whole story. Um, Mark, the writer, sort of just huge reams of folders of notes. And so everyone sort of collates them in different ways and then we all meet up. And I think it's quite nice to sort of go, different notes are stored in someone else's head. Yeah. Because when it comes to the round table sort of discussions, they'll be highlighting sort of key things. Because we'll, we will forget them. So it needs mm. that sort of, collective brain mentality mm. it's definitely a really hard area to keep track of and i think on a film of the scale and the speed as well at which stop motion shoots although everyone thinks it's very slow it's when you have sort of maybe up to 35 animators all shooting and the art department all building things for the shots coming up it's really it is really tricky to keep mm. track rich has got this amazing ability just to remember everything i think so he'd always tell me when when something he thought was relevant, he'd tell me the next time he saw me, which I thought was great. Um, I, however, had a terrible memory, but I did also write everything down. So I have lots and lots of notebooks. And again, we're just we're just trying to, you know, because it evolves as you shoot it. So we are just trying to keep keep our both our our sort of our focus on the film in the same places. Mm. Yeah, I think important. Like one thing we would do quite a lot on an almost daily basis in every meeting. The scenes we were working on, we would pitch them to each other because mm -hmm. you sort of notice as someone is telling you the story, they're focusing on sort of, they're emphasising things and they're just sort of disregarding others. You go, okay, I can see what's going to become important when we shoot this and what what no one will notice or what, what isn't important to us. And so that pitching process keeps refining it in your head. It's like a sort of stand-up routine. You just keep honing it and honing it and honing it to go, I don't need to mention Lula's backstory at this point or I need to make sure everyone knows that Sean is carrying X or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you start to notice it more and more. And I was like telling a joke and going, oh, I forgot I've missed that a bit at the front that you needed some relevant piece of information. So this pitching process allows you to keep sort of refining and sort of like remembering 
Yeah. So it's all in there. Keeping things fresh. Yeah. Even like maybe one year into production or two years. Well, yeah, the sort of yeah. the story process, which I've always loved, is like we just keep telling the same story to each other and trying to make each other laugh and finding new jokes or sort of new angles to see it from. Yeah. And so it's that just constant. Because that's when, when we go into Ranto, we go, this isn't working. Then we go, let's pitch it from Bits' perspective. Or what if we just pitch it as a story and you don't know who the characters are? So you start to see new angles into it. Yeah, it's funny how you get fixed on certain things being in the film, but but quite often we'd find if we were really objective, there were things we were trying to keep in there that really didn't have the relevance or the importance. So certain certain elements of the story which changed, we we did go through a process of sort of stripping out. Mm. And obviously everything around those things shift then because they, they don't need to hold that that particular key information together in the same way. Yeah, no, it's it's good. It's sort of just be able to talk to one another, being on the same level. I guess that helps a lot rather than you know just kind of holding everything inside, almost like a secret. You know, I have the best ideas. I'll keep them <laughs> secret really, from really, everyone else. It's really useful because, like, you'll realize as you're telling the story, um, you might go, "This is taking forever," and and I still not like when they escape from the underground base and go into space. I remember a great discussion as to when they would go into space and how long the escape from the base would be. And like one pitch, it was like 15 minutes long. And then in space was 15 minutes long. And you go, that's like a third of the film. And so like, should should the underground base escape be really quick and then mm. space should be longer or vice versa? So that was a, that was a big, that mm. was a big round table discussion. That took several mm. days yeah. and it kept changing back and forth. But you'd, you'd be able to, only through telling it, you start to go, actually, this is, this could be a lot more succinct or a lot pacier. And then there are other parts we go, this really needs to breathe. So we would talk about Lula at the crash site and you go, you can rush through that if you tell it, but if you go, you just, you take in how she must be feeling right now and how Sean feels about what he's done. And so it starts to sort of, you go, this, this needs breathing room for not only for the characters to understand and feel, but also for the audience to sort of um, empathize and connect with both of their sort of like sort of tragic moments mm. yeah no, it's a, there's a lot there's a lot different layers of filmmaking um and some are quite invisible like they're kind of the emotional story of the characters mm. um well you mentioned that you, you work with about 30 to 35 animators at the same time so you come in in the morning and you're presented with the setup so what mm. what are the things that you look out for do you have your animatic with you or the labs like yeah. what's the process well, the, the animatic is the is a really, obviously, it's always critical, but in stop motion it feels more so because you don't get more than one take generally. So the main thing is all the preparation has to go in before the animator starts shooting. And so that involves all of the crew relying on those particular boards in the animatic to tell them what the props are, um, what the scale of the set is, what characters are in there, because all those departments will be building things in advance of that day mm -hmm. of the shoot. And quite often, everything comes together just before the animator starts. So I guess when we first go into a unit, and Rich and I would always try and get the initial time for setting up a scene. Say we know we've got this underground base, which is an enormous, mm. enormous set, really complicated. So we try and go in there for, you know, two weeks before the first shots happen and just 
create a look of picture, but also work out the layout of particular things. Because up to this point, the story team are drawing elements which they know exist, staircases, doorways and stuff, but there's no necessarily master plan. And the art director's building it in a way that's modular so it can all slot together. So really, we just have to, we have to try and visualise it in that first visit on set before it's lit and, and see what the problems are going to be or see if anything needs changing. And then two weeks later, when we've got our animator in there, maybe for the first time, we're going in and the first thing you think about is, is the shot going to work because are the props the right size or are the characters going to fit on screen in the mm -hmm. way that they've been drawn? So there's lots of practical, there's, there's no potential to change things very quickly mm -hmm. in stop motion. Someone yeah. might have spent six weeks making this prop, it sort of has to work. But if it doesn't do what it was meant to do in the boards, you've got to think of a new way, yeah. a way of solving it. Yeah. Thinking, yeah, thinking on your feet on the day. Yeah. Yeah, if yeah. you need to change. So kind of being flexible, I guess, is a big part of it. Yeah, it's like Will said, it's thinking your ideas on the spot because like a, a prop will arrive that fits one character's hand but the other character can't hold it or the scale is slightly off for a an idea of a joke to work and so you go okay what other jokes are there in that room and so you sort of go can can I just have a sort of 10 minutes to look at the set and you've got 10 minutes to think of new jokes on the spot and it's like but you're just sort of constantly sort of going okay how can I do this now and then all the extra sort of not storytelling aspects so like then you have to sort of speak to the DOP and go I need the camera to sort of like slide along whilst this is happening and then all the lighting that was above it needs to go with it. And so there's there's loads of just nuts and bolts parts of it before the animator can then just sort of mm -hmm. add things to it. There's a few sort of um, shots that we cut eventually, but they were incredibly complex sort of like pieces and it's just it, it just took ages to plan before yeah. we even began began to shoot. So those are always tricky things to do. Mm -hmm. you're not I don't think we were anticipating sometimes you'd go, oh, that's not shootable. And you'd be like, I'd put all my eggs in that basket. So, <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of hope for the best, but yeah, you know. It's amazingly. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. It's, it is incredible when you see the scale of it, how it, it continues to sort of roll. Because, because with all those animators, we've got our production team really with this huge jigsaw, which mm -hmm. is the film. If something goes wrong with a set, it's not very easy to suddenly take all the crew off that and put them onto something else because the set isn't there. Nothing exists. So so there is a lot of um, problem solving, like on a daily basis, every unit. I mean, I'd say probably mm -hmm. half of the, say Rich and I would have maybe 12 visits each in the morning to do, 12 different sets. Probably six of them would be complicated because something wouldn't be as we planned it. And the other six, you just walk in brief the animator and just sigh a huge sigh of relief as he walked away knowing that it would come back fine because like I said you only get one shot really. Yeah no it's a I mean I mean all kind of different forms of animation take time but stop motion seems to require so much more planning because like you said you if people are actually building physical objects or physical uh, sets and you have one take so there's yeah. a lot more planning to do. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, one of the other things we haven't talked heavily about, but it is the fact that these puppets, these, you know, Sean and Lula, they're real objects which have been beautifully and very carefully designed, but they can't possibly do everything that, that we humans can do. And certainly we've storyboarded and thought of them doing all these different actions and emotions, 
and quite often every single shot has a new challenge for a puppet. So the animators are constantly trying to figure out how to, you know, how to make them do the things yeah. you just asked yeah. them to do. And I guess there's a limited number of puppets as well. It's not like you can have 30 no, sets with exactly Sean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we spent a long time without a, a version of Lula that could sit down. We just mm. had the standing one for, yeah. for ages. <laughs> and so, you know, we're coming up with all these creative ways to frame things differently on the day because you can't get access to that particular puppet. Or yeah. you had a, a sequence where she was climbing the tower and we, we literally got the, the one puppet that we needed that you could actually look up towards just just on the day just or? on the day so yeah. we were planning with the other one and how we would frame her differently and because it was on another unit and i think i remember another one where we had a character um a human character he was walking across the screen and the frame that he left they immediately unscrewed him from the floor ran him across the <laughs> studio to a different unit to scrim on just as he steps into camera and it's like because yeah. the continuity is he's in both shots mm. so the the sort of the the planning like the the floor manager and all the crew like there's so many sort of like you'll hear radios going he's ready and like people sprinting with him because it's like it is like it's a weirdly slow fast process Mm, yeah yeah Yeah, for all the pieces of the puzzle to kind of fit together gosh Mm -hmm. there must be so many so many people running the floor as well Mm, um and and to talk a little bit about kind of the voice uh, voice directing, because Shaun the Sheep is a silent film, there's no dialogue. So when you prepare for your actors and when you're actually in the studio with them, how do you direct a silent film? I know it's not silent, silent, but non-dialogue, <coughs> a non-dialogue film. How do you prepare for that? So uh, similarly, we, we have a library of Shaun Sands because he does bleat in a very expressive way. And so we start builds what we need him to say. And then we'd write um, like dialogue sheets, like we need uh, an ex- a sad bar or a happy bar. And then when we go to the voice record, we would watch the animatic with um, Justin and John and Amalia, who's sort of the main sort of, and Kate, the main voices of the sort of David. Going to risk lift off all the crew now. Um, we'd watch it with them, and then we'd talk through like what they're feeling, and then like they would just go okay, and then almost like improv, they would try things out, and so they go like that, and we'd go that was really nice, or could we try a bit more um, sad, or what would be a, an even more jolly version of that, and so there was sort of like it was just amazing to watch that they would totally come to life with all this. Mm. This you'd think like the nuance in a in a tiny bleat and Justin would do loads and go, let me try another one. I've got an idea. Mm. And so it's like, there's a tiny pause or a tiny breath and you suddenly go, I know how Sean feels now. Yeah. J- Justin uh, Fletcher and John Sparks, who played the voices since the series began, they're so good at what they do. I mean, they're so, so good. It's impressive that you can get them. We tend to have them sort of four hour slots and we record a few sessions at the beginning and then the odd day during the shoot. And we were always trying to do it in advance, so before the animator animates it. Um, but they're just so good at it. And so, yeah, like Rich is saying, we'll explain, we'll try and get under the skin of what the character's going through, and then they just go for it. And they know how to how to enunciate that mm-hmm. feeling. But Amalia was brand new to it, and she just she slotted in as if she'd done it for a long time. Um, because with her... We did sort of have a dialogue. We actually wrote a, 
a language down that she could use because she's an alien and she needed to say these certain words. So we had a, a very limited vocabulary and then we got her to record them over and over again and hundreds of takes. And then we'd go through, Yeah, we'd go through afterwards when we got back to Bristol, we'd put them all into the edit and we'd literally listen through each one mm -hmm. and pick out the ones we thought might work. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how, like you guys are saying, just a small sound evokes so much emotion and you understand what the character is feeling and thinking because um, you never kind of question it when you watch it. It's like, yeah, it's as if they're talking to us, but they're not, obviously. They're yeah. not, you know, saying a, yeah. a specific words. Um, and as, as the last question, to kind of wrap this up, now that you've directed a feature film and you're very wise and experienced directors, um, is there any advice you would give to someone who perhaps is starting out as a director or there for a feature film or something you would like to have known at the start of the uh, Shaun the Sheep uh, for my in production? Well, my joking answer would be don't do it. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that because I think if you want to direct, you, you, you know what you're going into. And I think everyone getting involved in directing knows it's, it's a huge, ambitious task and it takes everything. And we were there, you know, for a year and a half all the time. So when the floor finishes at 6pm, we carry on till 10 p.m. because we've got to prepare for the next day. That goes with the territory. But I think the thing I probably learned that I didn't know was how important um, getting everything into the animatic is because even at the point where we'd finished shooting everything, when we took our film, our visuals to London to do the sound and the mix, there were things along the way that we'd sort of thought about doing that just got lost because we didn't quite get them in we didn't test them out or we couldn't try them in, in the animatic in time. So I think it's that, for me, it was that that is the best stage to make the film, you know, before you shoot it. And if you can, if you've got an idea, try it out in story time. Don't try it out um, halfway through production or, or in the last two weeks. <laughs> Sounds good. How about you, Richard? I have a slightly earlier one. So I remember when I started at Ardman and I spoke to... Richard Starzak, the creator of Transhuman, and he said, like, what do you want to do? And I says, um, one day I'd like to direct. And he said, you should tell people that. And I thought that was really sort of useful advice because no one knows what your secret ambitions are unless you keep telling them. So it's like, if you want to be a writer, tell everyone I want to be a writer. Because that opportunities will come along and they'll go, oh, we've got too many episodes or it's running over budget. We need another person. Does anyone know anyone in the building who has secret passions to do this and it's like oh yeah Sansa can't shut up about it and so like they'll they'll give you that opportunity it's like but also you, you've got to sort of show the drive and ambition to want to do it so it's like it isn't just handed to you um because you say I should I should be the writer it's like I should be the writer on top of all that I write all this stuff and I mm. keep writing and I get myself in all the meetings where all the writers are so like they go okay this person has the sort of the potential and the sort of ambition to do this. The directors at Ardman or the future directors of the people you can sort of see, they, they say it and they make short films or they keep pitching ideas for stories where they're constantly coming up with stuff. So it's like, don't give up and just keep at it, I suppose is the sort of what I'm trying to say. Because it is, it is tough and it is really hard. Like what we was talking about, it's sort of like, it does drain you a lot. But um, the reward is amazing. I remember when we did our test screening, 
um, our first test screen with a real audience and um, Lula appeared on camera for the first time and there was this sort of sort of this wonderful hush in the room everyone went quiet because you suddenly realized there's this new character appearing. and then she steps out of the shadows and then like sort of you just feel the room fell in love with her and, like some people were like, oh and then others like but you felt this warmth and you go that was two years of hard work and they they instantly get her and i turned to well and I went we've done it because mm. it's such a magical feeling to go like Two years ago, this was just an idea in one of our heads or like a doodle on a piece of paper. So it's just it's a magical, such a rewarding experience at the end of it. That's brilliant. Well, that's, that's a wonderful way to end, to kind of give people an insight um, into into your your work. Um, so thank you so much, both of you, for, for coming along this journey. It's been thank really, you. really thank great. You. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.